0: Book One, Chapter One of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, Tasmania. Strangers and Pilgrims, Chapter One. Give me a look, give me a face that makes simplicity a grace, robes loosely flowing, Hair as free such sweet neglect more taketh me than all the adulteries of art they strike mine eyes but not my heart the scene was an ancient orchard on the slope of a hill in the far west of england an orchard bounded on one side by an old-fashioned garden where roses and carnations were blooming in their summer glory and on the other by a ponderous red brick wall heavily buttressed and with a moat at its outer base, a wall that had been built for the protection of a more important habitation than Hawley Vicarage. Time was when the green slope where the rugged apple trees spread their crooked limbs in the sunshine was a prim pleasance, and when the hill was crowned by the grim towers of Hawley Castle. But the civil wars made an end of the Gothic towers and machicolated galleries that had weathered many a storm, and nothing was now left save a remnant of the old wall and one solitary tower, to which some archaeologically-minded vicar in time past had joined the modest parsonage of Hawley Parish. This was a low white building of the farmhouse type, large and roomy, with bow windows to some of the lower rooms and diamond-paned casements to others. In this western land of warm rains and flowers, the myrtles and roses climbed to the steeply sloping roof, and every antique casement was set in a frame of foliage and blossom it was not a mansion which a modern architect would have been proud to have built by any means but a dwelling-place with which a painter or a poet would have fallen madly in love at first sight there were pigeons cooing and boop boop booping among the moss-grown corbels of the tower a blackbird in a wicker cage hanging outside one of the narrow windows a skylark in a little green wooden box decorating another The garden where the roses and carnations flourished had somewhat of a neglected look not weedy or forlorn only a little unkempt and over-luxuriant like a garden to which the hireling gardener comes once a week or which is left to the charge of a single outdoor labourer who has horses and pigs upon his mind nay perhaps also the daily distraction of indoor duties in the boot and knife-cleaning way Perhaps, looking at the subject from a purely poetical point of view, no garden should ever be better kept than that garden at Hawley. What ribbon-bordering or artistically variegated mosaic of Lobelia and Petunia and Calcillaria and Verbena could ever equal the wild beauty of roses that grew at their own sweet will against a background of syringa and arbutus, shrubs that must have been planted by some unknown benefactor in the remote past for no incumbent of late years had ever been known to plant anything what prim platter-like circles of well-behaved bedding-out plants spick and span from the greenhouse could charm the sense like the various and yet familiar old-world flowers that filled the long wide borders in parson luttrell's flower garden of this small domain, about half an acre consisted of meadow-like grass, not often improved by the roller and sometimes permitted to flourish in rank luxuriance ankle-deep. The girls, that is to say Wilmot Luttrell's four daughters, managed to play croquet upon that green sward nevertheless, being at the croquet-playing stage of existence when a young woman hard-driven would play croquet in an empty coal cellar. Near the house the grass assumed form and dignity and was bordered by a rugged sweep of loose gravel called the carriage drive. And just opposite the drawing-room windows there stood an ancient stone sundial on which the ladies of Hawley Castle had marked the slow passage of the empty hours in centuries gone by. Only a hedge of holly divided the garden from a strip of wasteland that bordered the dusty high-road but a row of fine old elms grew on that intervening strip of grass and secured the lutteral damsels from the gaze of the vulgar. But for seclusion, for the sweet sense of utter solitude and retirement, the orchard was best, that undulating slope of mossy turf cropped close by occasional sheep which skirted the flower garden and stretched away to the rear of the low white house the very wall crowned with gaudy dragon's mouth and creeping yellow stone crop was in itself a picture and in the shelter of this wall which turned its stalwart old back to the west was the nicest spot for an afternoon's idleness over a new book or the worthless scrap of lace or muslin which constituted the last mania in the way of fancy work this at least was what elizabeth luttrell said of the old wall and as she had been born and reared for the nineteen years of her young life at Hawley, she was a tolerable judge of the capabilities of garden and orchard she sits in the shadow of the wall this june afternoon alone with an unread book in her lap elizabeth luttrell is the beauty of a family in which all the daughters are or have been handsome the peerless flower among four fair sisters who are renowned through this part of the western world as the pretty Miss Luttrell's. About Gertrude, the eldest, or Diana, the second, or Blanche, the youngest, there might be differences of opinion, a question raised as to the length of Gertrude's nose, a doubt as to the width of Diana's mouth, and a schism upon the merits of Blanche's figure. But the third daughter of the house of Luttrell was simply perfect. You could no more dispute her beauty than that of the Florentine Venus. What a picture she made upon this midsummer afternoon, as she sat in the shade of the ruddy old wall, in a holland dress, and with a blue ribbon twisted in her hair, profile of face and figure in full relief against the warm background, every line the perfection of grace and beauty, every hue and every curve a study for a painter. Oh, if among all the splendid fashion-plates in the Royal Academy the duchess in black velvet train and point lace flounces and scarlet silk petticoats and diamonds the marchioness in blue satin and blonde and pearls the countess in white silk and azaleas the viscountess in tulle and rosebuds if in this feast of millinery elizabeth luttrell could but shine forth sitting by the orchard wall in her washed-out holland gown what a revelation that fresh young beauty would seem It was not a rustic beauty, however, not a loveliness created to be dressed in white muslin and to adorn a cottage, but splendid, rather, and worthy to rule the heart of a great man. Nose, a small aquiline. Eyes, that darkly clear grey, which in some lights deepens to violet. Complexion, a warm brunette. Forehead low and broad hair of the darkest brown with ruddy golden beams lurking in its crisp waves, hair which is in itself almost a sufficient justification for any young woman to set up as a beauty, if her stock in trade were no more than those dark brown tresses, those delicately arched brows and upward curling lashes. In all the varying charms of expression, as well as in regularity of feature, nature has gifted Elizabeth Luttrell with a lavish hand. She is the crystallisation of centuries of dead-and-gone lutterals, all more or less beautiful, for the race is one that can boast of good looks as a family heritage. She sits alone by the old wall, the western sunlight shining through the red-and-yellow flowers of the dragon's mouth above her head. Sits alone, and with loosely-linked hands lying idle in her lap, and fixed, dreaming eyes. It is nearly an hour since she has turned a leaf of her book, when a ringing soprano voice calling her name and a shower of rose leaves thrown across her face scares away her daydreams she looks up impatiently angrily even at blanche the hoyden of the family who stands above her on the steep grassy slope with a basket of dilapidated roses on her arm the damsel incorrigibly idle alike by nature and habit has been seized with an industrious fit and has been clipping and trimming the roses What a lazy creature you are lizzie she exclaims i thought you were going to put the ribbons on your muslin dress for this evening i wish you'd be good enough to concern yourself about your own clothes blanche and leave mine alone and please don't come screaming at me when i'm asleep you weren't asleep your eyes were ever so wide open you were thinking i can guess what about and smiling at your own thoughts I wish I had anything as nice to think about. That's the worst of having a handsome sister. How can I suppose that anyone will take any notice of poor little me? Upon my honour, Blanche, I believe you are the most provoking girl in creation. You can't believe that, for you don't know all the girls in creation. One of the most, then. But that comes of sending a girl to school. You have all the schoolgirl vulgarities. "'I'm sure I didn't want to go to Miss Derwent's, Lizzie. "'It was Gertrude's fault making such a fuss about me "'and setting Papa at me. "'I'd much rather have run wild at home.' "'I think you'd run wild anywhere, in a convent even.' "'I dare say I should, but that's not the question. "'I want to know if you're going to wear your clean white muslin "'because my own toilet hinges on your decision.' it's a serious matter for girls who are only allowed one clean muslin a week i don't know perhaps i shall wear my blue replies elizabeth with a careless air pretending to read you won't do anything of the kind it's ever so tumbled and i know you like to look nice when mr ford is here you're such a mean girl elizabeth luttrell You pretend not to care a straw how you dress and dawdle here, making believe to read that stupid old volume of travels to the Victoria thingamabob, which the old foes of the book club chose for us, instead of some jolly novel. And when we've put on our veriest rags, you'll scamper up the back stairs just at the last moment and come down a quarter of an hour after he has come, all over crisp muslin flounces and fresh pink ribbons just as if you'd a French milliner at your beck and call. I really can't help it if I know how to put on my things a little better than you and Diana. I'm sure Gertrude is always nicely dressed. Hmm, yes, Gertrude has the brand of cane. Gertrude is a born old maid. One can see it in her neck ribbons and top knots. Now, how about the white muslin? I wish you wouldn't worry, Blanche i shall wear exactly what i please i will not be pestered by a younger sister what's the time the fourth miss luttrell drags a little geneva silver watch from her belt by a black ribbon a silver watch presented to her by her father on her fifteenth birthday to be exchanged for a gold one at some indefinite period of the vicar's existence when a gleam of prosperity shall brighten the dull level of his financial career He's given similar watches to all his daughters on their fifteenth birthdays, but Lizzie's lies forgotten among disabled brooches and odd earrings in a trinket box on her dressing table. Elizabeth Luttrell does not care to note the progress of her days on a pale-faced Geneva timepiece, value something under £5. ''Half-past five by me,'' says Blanche. ''And are you twenty minutes slow or twenty minutes fast?'' Well, I believe I'm five and twenty minutes slow. Then I shall come to dress in half an hour. I wish you'd just tack those pink bows on my dress, Blanche. You're evidently at a loss for something to do. Just tack, repeats the younger sister with a wry face. You mean sew them on, I suppose. That's like people asking you to touch the bell when you're comfortably coiled up in an easy chair at the other end of the room. It sounds less than asking one to ring it, but one has to disturb oneself all the same. I don't see why you shouldn't sew on your own ribbons. And I'm dead tired. I've been standing in the broiling sun for the last hour, trimming the roses and trying to make the garden look a little decent. Oh, very well. I can get my dress ready myself, says Elizabeth with a grand air not lifting her eyes from the volume in which she struggles vainly to follow the current of the victoria nyanza has not malcolm ford expressed the respectful wish that she were a little less vague in her notions of all that vast world which lies beyond the market town and rustic suburbs of hawley don't be offended lizzie you know i always do anything you ask me where are the ribbons in the left hand top drawer be sure you don't tumble my flounces i'll take care i'm so glad you're going to wear your white for now i can wear mine without gertrude grumbling about my extravagance in beginning a clean muslin at the end of the week as if people with any pretense to refinement ever made any difference in their gowns at the end of the week as if anybody but utter barbarians would go grubby because it was friday or saturday mind you come upstairs in time to dress lizzie I shall be ready child the people are not to be here till seven the people as if you cared one straw about jane harrison or laura melvin and that preposterous brother of hers you manage to flirt with the preposterous brother at any rate says lizzie still looking down at her book oh one must get one's hand in somehow and as if there were any choice of a subject in this godforsaken place blanche how can you use such horrid expressions but it is god forsaken i heard captain fielding call it so the other day you're always picking up somebody's phrases now do go and tack on those ribbons or i shall have to do it myself oh and that would be a calamity cries blanche laughing when there's anybody else whose services you can utilise it was one of the golden rules of elizabeth luttrell's life that she should never do anything for herself which she could get any one else to do for her what was the good of having 3 unmarried sisters all plainer than oneself unless one made some use of them she herself had grown up like a flower as beautiful and as useless not to toil or spin only to be admired and cherished as a type of god-given idle loveliness that her beauty was to be profitable to herself and to the world by-and-by in some large way she regarded as an inevitable consequence of her existence she had troubled herself very little about the future had scarcely chafed against the narrow bounds of her daily life that certainty of high fortune awaiting her in the coming years supported and sustained her in the meanwhile she lived her life a life not altogether devoid of delight but into which the element of passion had not yet entered. Even in so dull a place as Hawley, there were plenty of admirers for such a girl as Elizabeth Luttrell. She had drunk freely of the nectar of praise, knew the full measure of her beauty, and felt that she was bound to conquer. All the little victories, the trivial flirtations of the present, were in her mind mere child's play, but they served to give some variety to an existence which would have been intolerably monotonous without them. She went on reading, or trying to read, for half an hour after Blanche had skipped up the green slope where the apple trees spread a fantastic carpet of light and shade in the afternoon sunshine. She tried her hardest to chain her thoughts to that book of African travel, but the Victoria Nyanza eluded her like a will-o'-the-wisp her thoughts went back to a little scene under an avenue of ancient limes in Hawley Road, a scene that had been acted only a few hours ago. It was not very much to think of, only an accidental meeting with her father's curate, Malcolm Ford, only a little commonplace talk about the parish and the choir, the early services and the latest volumes obtainable at the Hawley Book Club mr luttrell had employed four curates since lizzie's sixteenth birthday and the first second and third of these young levites had been lizzie's devoted slaves it had become an established rule that the curate mr luttrell could only afford one though there were two churches in his duty should fall madly in love with elizabeth but the fourth curate was of a different stuff from the material out of which the three simpering young gentlemen fresh from college were created. Malcolm Ford was five and thirty years of age, a man who'd been a soldier and who had taken up this new service from conviction, a man who possessed an income amply sufficient for his own simple needs and in no way looked to the church as an honourable manner of solving the great enigma of how a gentleman is to maintain himself in the world he was a christian in the purest and widest sense of the word an earnest thinker an indefatigable worker an enthusiast upon all subjects relating to his beloved church to such a man as this all small flirtations and girlish follies must needs appear trivial in the extreme but mr ford was not a prig nor was he prone to parade his piety before the eyes of the world so he fell into the ways of Hawley with consummate ease, played croquet with the mallet of a master, disliked jinks and grandiose entertainments at rich people's houses, but was not above an impromptu picnic with his intimate associate, a gypsy tea in Everton Wood or a friendly musical evening at the Parsonage. He had little time to devote to such relaxations, but did not disdain them on occasion at the outset of their acquaintance the four luttrell girls vowed they should always be afraid of him that those dreadful cold grey eyes of his made them feel uncomfortable when he looks at me in that grave-searching way i positively feel myself the wickedest creature in the world cried diana who was of a sprightly disposition and prone to a candid confession of all her weaknesses how i should hate to marry such a man It would be like being perpetually brought face to face with one's conscience. "'I think a woman's husband ought, in a manner, to represent her conscience,' said Gertrude, who was nine and twenty, and prided herself upon being serious-minded. "'At least I should like to see all my faults and follies reflected in my husband's face, and to grow out of them by his influence.' "'What a hard time your husband would have of it, Gertie!' exclaimed the flippant Blanche, assisting at the conversation from outside the open window of the breakfast-room, or den, in which the four damsels were as untidy as they pleased. Elizabeth's colour-box and drawing-board, Gertrude's work-box, Diana's desk, and Blanche's Dorcas bag all heaped pell-mell upon the battered old sideboard.' If you spent more time among the poor, Diana, said Gertrude, not deigning to notice this interruption, you need not be afraid of any man's eyes. When our own hearts are at peace... Oh, don't, please, Gertie, don't give me any warmed-up versions of your tracts. The state of my own heart has nothing to do with the question... If i were the most spotless being in creation i should feel just the same about mr ford's eyes as for district visiting you know very well that my health was never good enough for that sort of thing i'm sure if papa had six daughters instead of four you'd do enough in the goody-goody line for the whole batch miss luttrell gave a gentle sigh and continued her needlework in silence she could not help feeling that she was the one bit of leaven that leavened the whole lump that if a general destruction were threatened by the daughters of Hawley by reason of their frivolities her own sterling merits might buy them off as the ten righteous men who were not to be found in sodom might have ransomed that guilty population elizabeth had been busy painting a little bit of still life an overripe peach and a handful of pansies and mulberry leaves lying loosely scattered at the base of mr luttrell's venetian claret flask she had gone steadily on with her work laying on little dabs of transparent colour with a quick light touch and not vouchsafing any expression of interest in the discussion of mr ford's peculiarities he's very good-looking diana said meditatively don't you think so lizzie you're an authority upon curates elizabeth shrugged her shoulders and answered in her most indifferent tone tolerably he has a rather good forehead rather good exclaimed gertrude grinding industriously across an expanse of calico with her cutting out scissors he has the forehead of an apostle how do you know that you never saw an apostle cried blanche from the window with her favourite line of argument and as for the pictures we see of them that's all humbug for there were no photographers in judea come indoors blanche and write a german exercise said gertrude it's too bad to stand out there all the mornings idling away your time and spoiling your complexion into the bargain added diana what a tawny little wretch you are becoming i don't care two straws about my complexion and i'm not going to cramp my hand with a horrid german think of the privilege of being able to read schiller in the original said gertrude solemnly i don't think much of it for i never see you read him though you do pride yourself on your german answered the flippant blanche and then they went back to mr ford and discussed his eyes and forehead again not arriving at any very definite expression of opinion at the last and elizabeth holding her ideas in reserve i don't think this one will be quite like the rest liz said diana significantly what do you mean by like the rest <laughs> why he won't make a fool of himself about you as mr horton did with his flute-playing and stuff and he won't go on like mr dysart and he won't write sentimental poetry and languish all the afternoon spooning at croquet like little mr adderley you needn't count upon making a conquest of him lizzie he has the ideas of a monk abelard was destined to become a monk replied elizabeth calmly but that did not prevent his falling in love with Eloise. oh i dare say you think it will end by his being as weak as the rest but he told me that he does not approve of a priest marrying rather rude wasn't it when you considered that we should not be in existence if papa had entertained the same opinion i don't suppose we count for much in his grand ideas of religion answered elizabeth a little contemptuously she had held her small flirtations with previous curates as the merest trifling but the trifling had been pleasant enough in its way she had liked the incense and behold here was a man who withheld all praise who had made his own scheme of life a scheme from which she elizabeth luttrell was excluded It was a new thing for her to find that she counted for nothing in the existence of any young man who knew her. This conversation took place when Mr. Ford had been at Hawley about a month. Time slipped past. Malcolm Ford took the parish in hand with a firm grip, Mr. Luttrell being an easy-going gentleman, quite agreeable to let his curate work as hard as he liked. Where there had been two services on a Sunday, there were now four. Where there had been one service on a great church festival, there were now five. The dim old aisles bloomed with flowers at Easter and Ascension, at Whitsuntide and Harvest Thanksgiving Feast, and the damsels of Hawley had new work to do in the decoration of the churches and in the embroidery of chalice covers and altar cloths. But it was not only in extra services and beautification of the temples alone that Mr. Ford brought about a new aspect of affairs in Hawley. The poor were cared for as they had never been cared for before. Almost all the time that the soldier curate could spare from his public duties, he devoted to private administration. And yet when he did permit himself an afternoon's recreation, he came to gypsy tea drinking or croquet with as fresh an air as if he were a man who lived only for pleasure. Above all, he never preached sermons out of the pulpit. That was his one merit, Lizzie Luttrell said, in a somewhat disparaging tone. (coughs) His one fault is to be so unlike the other curates, Liz, and to be able to resist your blandishments, said Diana sharply. Mr. Ford had made himself a favourite with all that household except Elizabeth. The other three girls worshipped him. She rarely mentioned him without a sneer, and yet she was thinking of him this midsummer afternoon as she sat by the orchard wall trying to read the volume he had recommended she was thinking of a few grave words in which he had confessed his interest in her thinking of the dark searching eyes which had looked for one brief moment into her own i really thought i counted for nothing she said to herself he has such off-hand ways and sets himself so much above other people i don't think he quite means to be grand it seems natural to him he ought to have been a general at least in india instead of a twopenny halfpenny captain the half-hour was soon gone it was very pleasant to her that idling in the shadow of the old wall for the thoughts of her morning's walk were strangely sweet sweeter than any flatteries that had ever been whispered in her ear and yet mr ford had not praised her had indeed seemed utterly unconscious of her superiority to other women his words had been frank and grave and kindly a little too much like a lecture perhaps and yet sweet for they were the first words in which malcolm ford had betrayed the faintest interest in her welfare and it is a hard thing for a young woman who has been a goddess and an angel in the sight of three consecutive curates to find the fourth as indifferent to her merits as if he were a man of stone yes he had decidedly lectured her that is to say he had spoken a little regretfully of her trivial wasted life her neglected opportunities i don't know what you mean by opportunities she had answered with a little contemptuous curl of the rosy upper lip i can't burst out all at once into a female bishop as for district visiting i've really no genius for that kind of thing and feel myself a useless bore in poor people's houses i know i've been rather idle about the church embroidery too she added with a deprecating air feeling that here he had cause for complaint i am very anxious that our churches should be made beautiful he answered gravely and i think it only natural for you to take a delight in that kind of labour but i do not consider ecclesiastical embroidery the beginning and end of life i should like to see you more interested in the poor and in the schools more interested in your fellow-creatures altogether in short I fancy the life you lead at Hawley Vicarage among your roses and apple trees is just a little the life of the lotus-eater. All its allotted length of days the flower ripens in its place, ripens and fades and falls and hath no toil, fast-rooted in the fruitful soil. It doesn't do for a responsible being to live that kind of life, you know leaving no better memory behind than the record of its beauty i should hardly venture to say so much as this miss luttrell if i were not warmly interested in you the clear pale face looking downward with a rather moody air like the face of a wayward child that can hardly suffer a rebuke flushed sudden crimson at his last words to mr ford's surprise for the interest he had confessed was of a purely priestly kind but young women are so sensitive and he was not unused to see his female parishioners blush and tremble a little under the magnetism of his earnest gaze and low grave voice conscious of that foolish blush elizabeth tried to carry off her confusion by a rather flippant laugh you read your tennyson you see she said though you lecture me for my idleness isn't poetry a kind of lotus-eating oh, hardly i think i don't consider my duty stern enough to cut me off from all the flowers of life i should be sorry to moon about with a duodecimo tennyson in my pocket when i ought to be at work but when i have a stray half-hour i can give myself a little indulgence of that kind "'Besides, Tennyson is something more than a poet. "'He is a teacher.' "'You will come to play croquet for an hour this evening, won't you? "'Gertrude wrote to you yesterday, I think.' "'Ah, yes. I must apologise for not answering her note. "'I shall be most happy to come, if possible. "'But I have two or three sick people to visit this afternoon, "'and I'm not quite sure of my time.' the poor souls cling to one so at last they want a friendly hand to grasp on the threshold of the dark valley and they have some dim notion that we hold the keys of the other world and can open a door for them and let them through to a better place than they could win for themselves oh, it must be dreadful to see so much of death said elizabeth with a faint shudder oh, hardly so dreadful as you may suppose a deathbed develops some of the noblest qualities of man's nature i have seen so much unselfish thoughtfulness for others so much tenderness and love in the dying and then for these poor people life has been for the most part so barren so troubled it's like passing away from a perpetual struggle to a land that is to be all brightness and rest if you'd only spend more time among your father's parishioners Miss. Lutterall, "'You would learn much that is worth learning of life and death.' "'Oh, I couldn't endure it,' she answered, shrugging her shoulders impatiently. "'I ought never to have been born a parson's daughter. "'I should do no good but harm, more likely. "'The people would see how miserable I thought them "'and be all the more discontented with their wretched lots after my visits.' i can't act goody-goody as gertrude does and make these poor wretches believe that i think the nicest thing in the world is to live in one room and have hardly bread to eat and only one blanket among six it's too dreadful six weeks of it would kill me mr ford sighed ever so faintly but said no more what a poor selfish narrow soul this lovely girl's must be nature does sometimes enshrine her commonest spirits in these splendid temples he felt a little disappointed by the girl's selfishness and coldness for he had imagined that she needed only to be awakened from the happy idleness of a young joy-loving spirit he said no more though they walked side by side as far as st mary's the red square tower church at the beginning of the town and parted with perfect friendliness yet the thought of that interview vexed malcolm Ford all day long i had hoped better things of her he said to himself but of course i shan't give up she's so young and seems to have a pliant disposition what a pity that luttrell has let his daughters grow up just as they please like the foxgloves in his hedges in mr Ford's opinion these four young women ought to have been trained into a little band of Sisters of Mercy, a pious sisterhood carrying life and light into the dark alleys of Hawley. It was not a large place, that western market town, numbering 11,000 souls in all. Yet there were alleys enough, and moral darkness and poverty and sickness and sorrow enough, to make work for a nunnery of ministering women. Mr. Ford had plenty of district visitors ready to labour for him, but they were for the most part ill-advised and frivolous ministrants, and absorbed more of his time by their need of counsel and supervision than he cared to give them. They were of the weakest order of womanhood, craving perpetual support and assistance, wanting all of them to play the ivy to Mr. Ford's oak, and no oak, however vigorous, could have sustained such a weight of ivy he had to tell them sometimes in plainest words that if they couldn't do their work without continual recourse to him, their work was scarcely worth having. Whereupon the weaker vessels dropped away, admitting in their high-church slang that they had no vocation. That is to say, there was too much bread and too little sack in the business, too much of the poor and not enough of Mr. Ford. For this reason he liked Gertrude Luttrell who went about her work in a womanlike way rarely applied to him for counsel had her own opinions and really did achieve some good it may have been for this reason and in his desire to oblige gertrude that he made a little effort and contrived to play croquet in the vicarage garden on this midsummer evening end of chapter 1